We are starting a new series today called Weaklings. And for the next four weeks, we're going to look at a couple passages in 2 Corinthians. And here's what we hope to accomplish in the series. First, we want to understand how weakness is a way to be embraced within the Christian life. We're not called to a life based upon our own strength, but rather our greatest strength is found in our greatest weakness. Uh, Secondly, we want to talk about how weakness relates to our presence within the city. Uh, We're not called to talk about Jesus or share Jesus from a place of strength over others, but from places of weakness. And lastly, uh, we hope that the series will be more autobiographical. So as I preach through this, as Roger and Alita preach through this, we hope to share stories from our own lives of how God has met us in our weakness as we journey towards him. Now, as you can tell, uh, I'm big into bodybuilding, you know, CrossFit. uh, And uh, obviously, I'm looking good. No, I'm not not big into working out. But uh, if you are, uh, you know, you may have heard this mantra, pain is weakness leaving the body. Pain is weakness leaving the body. And this was actually developed by the U.S. Marines Recruitment Center, uh, and it captures how we just view weakness as a bad thing. Uh, Nobody wants to be perceived as weak. Uh, We can tolerate a great deal of pain if the end goal is our own strengthening. And no one, you know, no one wants to be a weakling. A weakling gets crushed by superior powers, you know. We want to be the strong, not the weak. And weakness is even a bit of a sport in our culture. It's no surprise that the news of people's failings and weakness tends to perform the best in the news. Or, you know, we might travel all the way to Italy to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa to celebrate and look at its strange weakness, you know, its structural weakness. But, you know, weakness, it's either a spectacle or it's an oddity, but not an asset in our perspective. So when I say that weakness, being weak, is a good thing in God's story in our lives. It's not surprising if you're feeling a little bit of resistance to that idea. You may say, nay, you know, there's scripture that calls us to strength, not weakness. This is true. You know, you need only look to Moses' exhortation to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Or Paul's encouragement to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Or his instruction to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Clearly, Being spiritually strong is a good thing. It's a good aim. I agree. But if we look uh, at the context of these exhortations, why were these instructions even necessary? To address a sense of weakness that was present in the lives of these people. The possibility of weakness. The challenge of weakness. And so what is weakness? Weakness is inadequacy or a sense of inadequacy. You know, there's physical weakness, like my inability uh, to lift a car, physical weakness. There's uh, mental weakness, you know, like my inability to do long division in my head. Uh, There's relational weakness, like my inability not to distract people with my good looks. But even if you are physically or mentally or relationally strong, the truth is that we're all spiritually weak. We have no strength to offer God. We're he's the strongest. You know, last I checked, I don't see any of us moving mountains with our faith. We can't impress him with any feet. He's seen it all. Uh, We are inadequate in comparison to him. We bring nothing to the table for God. And the way to God, then, is through acknowledging our weakness before him, moving toward him, understanding that none of our abilities whatsoever deserve his presence. But I want to be clear about something from the get-go in this series. Weakness is not an end. Weakness is not an end. It's a way. It's through weakness that we find strength in the Christian life. 
And the end goal then isn't our weakness, but Christ's strength found in our weakness. And so that's the gist of where we're going to be heading over the next four weeks. Uh, But let's get started for today. Uh, Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're just going to read uh, verses 5 through 7. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. These verses alone will be what we're looking at this morning. And throughout his letters to the Corinthians, Paul is very clear about something. His ministry is not about him. He's not interested in building a mini empire around his name. His ministry is all about Jesus. He's simply a servant of Jesus and a servant to the people that God calls him to. Hence why he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus with ourselves as servants for your sake. All of what Paul does and says is an act of service for Jesus' sake. All Paul can talk about is Jesus. All Paul is concerned about is Jesus. All Paul wants people to know about is Jesus. All Paul wants to do is please Jesus. Why such zealousness? Now, this sort of religious intensity makes many people nervous. Now, can Paul just bring it down a notch? No. Because he says, he serves the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. And Paul knows, not just theologically what it means for God to have spoken light into existence, but what it means for God's light to shine into his own darkness. Because all throughout his letters, Paul is honest. He wasn't searching for God. He doesn't deserve to be a minister. He persecuted the church. He hunted down Christians. He broke apart families. He imprisoned innocent people. He wasn't looking for Jesus in a positive sense. He was looking for Jesus' followers to harm them, to persecute them, to oppress them. And yet Jesus, in his mercy, sought Paul out. Jesus, in his mercy, loved Paul the enemy. When Paul was in darkness, Jesus, in his mercy, brought light into his life and set his life on a new course. It was all an act of God's mercy. And in his mercy, Jesus called Paul to proclaim the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Because the gospel always comes to us on its way to somebody else. So, Paul's all, his affections, his emotions, his mind, his heart, his soul, They're captured by Jesus because it's the face of Jesus where we encounter the glory of God. It's through the face of Jesus that we can come to know who God is. The glory of God, the beauty of God, the splendor of God. Elsewhere, Paul calls it the fullness of God, which means if you look to Jesus, you're not just encountering some nice teachings about God, some nice ideas about God, or one perspective on who God is. You encounter all of God. The fullness of God himself in the person of Jesus. So no, Paul can't turn it down a notch. Because if this is true, it's the only thing that matters. God has made himself known in an incredible way. He can be found and discovered and seen in the face of Jesus. And that's why Paul proclaims Jesus. God walked among us and made himself known and reconciled us to himself through his death on the cross. But then Paul says something very interesting in verse 7, doesn't he? But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
Knowing God through the face of Jesus is a treasure. A treasure. You know, Jesus even says this in some of his parables. Matthew 13, Jesus teaches the kingdom of heaven, which is the reign of God, his, his rule and the reign unhindered, is like a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's a treasure of surpassing worth. So much so that you go and invest and give everything you can to obtain it. You go bankrupt, in a sense, to acquire it. It's a treasure above all treasures. You know, it's immense riches. It's beyond silver or gold or the mighty dollar. But if you sold everything you have to acquire one thing, all your belongings for one treasure, where would you store it? Somewhere secure, right? bank or a vault or a safety deposit box somewhere like a thousand feet underground you know uh, when I was a kid I had a prized possession a magnet uh, not just any magnet but a speaker magnet you know like a high-powered magnet and I had saved all this money up and then my mom took me to a garage sale and I found this speaker and I bought it because I knew there would be this strong magnet in it and so I spent everything I had just to acquire a speaker magnet I know a little weird but uh One might say it was a precious jewel to me. You know, I kept it in my pocket because you never know when you're going to need a high-power magnet, you know. I'd bring it to the dinner table because I could point it at my sister's cutlery and steal it from her, you know. I love that magnet. But since it was such a prized possession to me, I developed a a fortress for it to protect it out of Lego, right? So I made this this Lego casing that I put the magnet in for safety. But... My most prized possession wasn't secure enough. A friend of mine, who I will name Michael Ferguson, uh, came over and decided that he liked my magnet enough that he would take it home for himself to play with. Lesson learned, Lego credo does not equal security. You know. Back to Paul. He says the message of Jesus, the gospel, it's a treasure. But where does God store the treasure? In jars of clay. The word Paul uses here is just everyday disposable household vessels. Nothing fancy, nothing strong, nothing overly secure. Just jars of clay. The ancient equivalent of a Tupperware missing its lid. What Jesus has done is, is infinitely valuable. It's immeasurably rich, and God stores it in breakable jars of clay. It doesn't seem like the most secure system in the world, especially when we realize that Paul is evoking this metaphor to describe us. God is saying, we are jars of clay. You know, we're Tupperware. Uh, and, and people, they're, they're weak. They're frail. They have shortcomings. They have limits. They're unreliable. They get lost. They crack. They break. Uh, they die. If anything, it seems like the vessels will compromise the message. At worst, they could misuse the message for their own gain and, and, and advantage. Wouldn't it have been better for God to store his treasure in some futuristic technology that the world had never seen and can't replicate and, and put the message in this secure thing in the center of the world where everyone can see and the message in its purity, untainted by humans. And the text clearly says no. No, it wouldn't. This isn't accidental. God chose to use jars of clay to store his treasure. He chose humanity to store his message of the gospel. This is how he wants his treasure to be made known and shared with the world. It's not like God was looking at humanity and said, well, they'll have to do. It was that he 
saw us in our weakness and decided to store this most valuable treasure of the gospel in us anyways because he wants to make us his people, people like Paul, people like me, people like you. So why did God on purpose then store his treasure in us? In one sense, God did it because we need to see that the gospel actually meets us, real people in real places with real issues. But more importantly, Paul says in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God, not to us. Our weakness, our frailty allows God's surpassing power to shine forth. It's not about us. When God works through us, then there's no mistaking his work for our own, which is why uh, Paul wants to focus on jars of clay because he's actually addressing an issue he's facing in Corinth. Paul planted the church in Corinth. But in his absence, other leaders, who he calls super apostles, crept in and began teaching things contrary to the gospel. They bent the scriptures for their own gain and benefit. They boasted of their skills and and their new teachings, and they highlighted their extraordinary spiritual knowledge and power. And so in short, everything was about them, their name, their ability, their accomplishments. And as a result, they brought in division and confusion to the church at Corinth. Unfortunately, many in the church bought into this. And as a result, people began to question Paul's ability, his sincerity, his motivations, and even his apostolic calling and the authority that comes with that. And this is why Paul refers to himself in all Christians as jars of clay. We can never boast about any strength or accomplishments because anything we do or say in respect to the gospel is always a result of Jesus' surpassing power and not our own. And so he's offering this as a corrective. The gospel always comes to the weak, not to the strong. It always comes to the people who need help, not the people who have it all together. And he wants the church in Corinth to remember that, that the gospel means dependency, not self-sufficiency. The gospel means stepping down and exalting Christ, not standing up above others and using the message of the gospel to build a name around yourself. Paul is saying, not in your own strength. We like strength. We don't want to be needy. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to require any aid for, you know, or support for survival. We don't want to be vulnerable. Uh, It's insecure. We want to be strong. We want to be capable. And ultimately, our entire culture aims us towards self-sufficiency. Epicurus, uh, the philosopher from the second century BC, would be well pleased with our culture. He said, self-sufficiency is the greatest of all wealth. Self-sufficiency is the greatest of all wealth. But Paul, he's saying the opposite. He isn't self-sufficient. He's dependent. His greatest treasure is not found in and of himself. Indeed, his greatest treasure is not even himself. It's Christ. But our culture along the lines of Epicurus says, no, 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 no. No. Self-sufficiency is our greatest treasure. It is our all. It is what we want. And so to help you out, Uh, I found a classic text by John Seymour on the guide to self-sufficiency. And and, and this is a serious book. It's it's non-time-consuming steps so that you can live a more self-sufficient life. So grab a pen. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what you got to do. Plow a field, sow wheat, plant corn, make hay, malt barley, rotate crops, grow vegetables, harness a horse, milk a cow, slaughter an ox, shear a sheep, pluck a chicken, cure ham, salt beef, brew beer, make wine, bake bread, churn butter, press cheese, pickle onions, prune trees, can fruit, dry herbs, keep bees, track game, set a snare, bait a hook, skin a rabbit, fillet a fish, tan a hide, sink a well, 
Build a barn, mend a wall, fire bricks, dress stones, split wood, spin flax, coil pots, weave a basket, thatch a roof, construct an oven, because everyone wants to construct an oven, deep freeze, store produce, make fuel, generate light, harness the wind, collect the rain, trap the sun, turn the soil, follow the seasons, respect the land, repeat the harvest, waste nothing, stay healthy, live well, and do this all within the confines of a 900 square foot in the apartment in the city. Uh, <laughs> Now, this is self-sufficiency in relation to society. But we also take this approach when it comes to our character. If we have any shortcomings, they should only be temporary. Uh, you're not fit? Go to the gym. Can't find a date? Join a website. Can't pay your rent? Get another job or another degree. Feeling depressed? Read a self-help book. Struggling with an addiction? Keep it secret and hope no one finds out until you figure out how to overcome it on your own without anyone ever needing to know. You know, we don't need God. We just need Google. We can find the solution, apply it ourselves, and be on our way. Now hear me, none of those things in and of themselves are always bad, but when we do those things from a place of self-sufficiency as if we're the only ones who can accomplish these things in our lives and that we don't really need anyone else, then it becomes problematic. Because we're believing that we have the strength within ourselves, that we can develop the competencies, that we can do it, that all we need is determination in the human spirit and maybe a few online searches. And then, if we're self-sufficient, we can boast, I did it. But the outcome of self-sufficiency is either pride for achieving our goal, shame for needing to hide our weakness and failure, or apathy, because you decide to accept that as part of who you are and give up on your self-improvement. All of our pursuits of self-sufficiency they're just an attempt to deny something very basic about ourselves. We aren't perfect and we need help getting there. When we look at ourselves and ourselves and we see the broken pieces, we see the places that need work. Um, there's places that just can't be mended on our own. There are mistakes that cannot be undone. There are wounds that cannot heal. There are places we need grace and mercy and forgiveness. And those places, those weak spots can never be entirely fixed by self-sufficiency. We were never meant to be self-sufficient. Tim Keller calls the self-sufficient world unreality. He's right. Even if you deny God, you cannot deny your dependency on earth and upon others. God created us to be dependent creatures. And then that means he has a very different approach then uh, to our frailty. Self-sufficiency isn't the solution. It takes us away from him. It takes us away from leaning into him and trusting him. But the treasure of the gospel takes us to him. The treasure of the gospel takes us to God. You see, in Christ, we, jars of clay, have been accepted with all our frailty and weakness and limits. Think about it. If God wanted to make us better instantaneously, if he wanted to upgrade us to gold lace, ruby encrusted vases, he could have decked us out in bling. He could have done it like that. But rather, he meets us as we are. Our frailty and our weakness is not an embarrassment to God. He doesn't need diamond vases. Uh, he likes us as jars. And the fact that he meets us and accepts us with all our frailty and weakness shows us how much we are worth to him as we are. And it means that he has made us worthy of carrying such a great treasure now. The gospel then imparts worth to us. He makes us worthy without needing major overhauls accomplished by us because the work has already been done by somebody else. 
You can try then and and go and live life independently. You can go the way of self-sufficiency, but you cannot offer yourself what you were made to experience because we were made to be God-dependent. When we acknowledge our weakness and our inability to overcome, we become free to turn to Jesus as we are. We become God-dependent rather than self-dependent. We depend on the Holy Spirit rather than the human spirit. And this isn't just a changing of terms. This is a fundamental shift in reality. And as a result, we don't have to deny that we're weak. We don't have to deny that we're frail. We don't have to uh, pretend. We can get on our knees and ask God to do it in us. In fact, our weakness and our frailty then becomes a way of showing just how great God is. He gets the glory as he mends us and heals us. He gets the glory as he helps us and pours out his mercy and forgiveness. He gets the glory as he imparts acceptance and worthiness to us. So anything we accomplish, any light that shines through our lives, it's not us. It's him. And we don't have to become self-sufficient because we're not afraid of being dependent. We don't have to be ashamed of our weaknesses and shortcomings because we're already accepted. We don't need to be proud to feel a sense of worth because we're already utterly loved exactly where we are, not some future version of ourselves. But I have to admit, I've always had a difficult time accepting this. I'm a super hyper overachiever. You know, I'm driven. I, I like being self-sufficient. I like everything to line up perfectly. And all of this makes this very difficult for me to accept my own shortcomings, to accept my weakness and my limits. I want to be limitless. I want to be strong. I want to be successful because of my hard work. And I've struggled to see how anything less would be honoring to God or even useful to God because, in a word, I'm a perfectionist. And, uh, and to the point that if I'm going to recover from perfectionism, I want to do it perfectly. You know, and, and, and honestly, I've always felt, I've always felt that if you're going to have a shortcoming, perfectionism is a pretty good one to have, you know. But beneath this is an insidious belief. It's the notion that unless I accomplish something, unless I get it right, unless I'm perfect, I'm unacceptable. I'm unworthy. I'm unlovable. And I feel shame over this. Deep, heavy shame. So you can see why I struggle to understand why God would want to put his treasure in a cracked vessel. In fact, this sermon's been a challenging one for me because it's turning a lot of how I normally think inside out. And so for years, I've gone to counseling to address this. And and one of my counselors shared this little parable with me, and it changed my perspective in life. I want to share it with you. A water bearer had two large pots. Each hung on the ends of a pole which he carried across his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other pot was perfect and always delivered a full portion of water. At the end of a long walk from the stream to the house, the cracked pot arrived only half full. Full of full two years, this went on daily, with the bearer delivering only one and a half pots full of water to his house. Of course, the perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments, perfect for which it had been made. The poor cracked pot was ashamed of its own imperfection and miserable that it was able to accomplish only half of what it had been made to do. After two years of what it perceived to be a bitter failure, it spoke to the water bearer one day by the stream. I'm ashamed of myself because of this crack in my side. It causes water to leak all the way back to your house. 
the bearer said to the pot, did you notice that were, there were flowers only on your side of the path, not on the other pot's side? That's because I've always known about your flaw. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path, and every day while we walk back, you've watered them. For two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate the table. Without you being just the way you are, there would not be this beauty to grace the house. This is precisely what God does with his jars of clay. God, and only God, can bring beauty through our weaknesses. And that's how God uses our weaknesses in the city. If we put on an air of perfection, it's actually um, not that appealing. It either repels people away because it feels insecure, or it makes them feel uh, insecure because of their own imperfections. You're repelling people because it just seems insincere, or you're you're breeding uh, insecurity in people if you pretend to be perfect. Or if we err... All of our dirty laundry, you know, without any sense of remorse, just, it's just as unappealing. The this is who I am and deal with it attitude is just another form of pride. But when we're honest about our shortcomings, when we're honest about our brokenness or our shame, and, and when we're even honest about our sins, it can be refreshing. It can be attractive. But even more so, when we point to God who meets us in those places, a God who loves us there, our vulnerability then reveals God's true nature to embrace us in our weakness, to have strength imparted to us to overcome the things that we simply can't overcome, to give us new life that we can't find within ourselves, who, the God who shows us mercy and forgiveness. And this is his surpassing power. Our city, then, doesn't need more people pretending to be perfect or even offering quick solutions to problems or self-help. Our city is full of people like you and me who need to know that their God loves them in their weakness. Our city needs more broken people gripped by God's power, which surpasses all other powers. Because his power overcomes our shame and our pride and our apathy. And in our weakness and cracks, he loves us still. And that is something others can connect with. Because sometimes, sometimes the most relieving words that someone can hear from your lips are this. Me too. Me too. Our greatest strength, then, is our greatest weakness. Because it's in our areas of greatest need and weakness, our limitations, our inabilities, that we can turn to Jesus only to discover that Christ has already met us there. And it's when Christ meets us there that he shines through our cracks to let others know that he's there too. Because weakness has always been the way of Jesus. He willingly became weak on the cross so that the power of God could be on display. Through his voluntary weakness, God was at work to reconcile everything to himself. That's the surpassing power of God that even in his weakness, Jesus overcame the powers that cause brokenness in the world and in our souls. And that's the beauty of God, that even in our weakness, he doesn't turn away but turns toward us and says, I understand, I'm here, here's my treasure.